According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can turn to Mark 14 this morning as we get started. Mark 14 and also, I'm sorry, Matthew 14 and Mark 6. These are the parallel passages we're going to be looking at in Mark 14. In Matthew 14, it's verses 34 through 36. And then in Mark 6, you want verses 53 through 56. Only two Gospels to bounce between this time, rather than the three or four that we've had here lately with uh, a number of our recent episodes in the life of Christ. One of the handouts that is in the hallway is the Harmony of the Gospels. It's also to be found, by the way, in the Through the Bible Notebook. We have uh, the Harmony of the Gospels that's printed there as well. It's a great tool since uh, the Lord chose to record the Gospel information in four parallel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are places where the same episode is covered by more than one Gospel. And so you're able to compare and contrast and synthesize the contrasting accounts and some uh, skeptics view them as being uh, contradictory or they view them as being problem passages. I don't find any contradiction in any gospel passage that uh, they complement each other, that we can harmonize them and synthesize them. If there are details that are divergent, we, we view them as simply different, not contradictory. And uh, we don't have any problem with that. In the overall life of Christ, uh, we've already covered the introduction, the early Aspect in birth, infancy, and adolescence, the uh, truths about John the Baptist, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and uh, which was the early Judean ministry where he was ministering in the realm of uh, the territory of Judah, contemporary with John the Baptist. And then uh, we've now been in the Galilean ministry for quite some time, a very lengthy period of time we've been in the Galilean ministry. Um, we restart the numbering on those with uh, with each section break, and so we're getting ready for today will be episode 38, uh, uh, the healing at Gennesaret. Uh, episode 38, that is in the numbering of the Galilean ministry. When we conclude the Galilean ministry, then the episodes will start back over again with episode number one in the uh, Perean ministry. So uh, the Galilean ministry is actually the longest. It is the longest in time. It is the longest in terms of number of events. Uh, going from 30 to 32 A.D., uh, this uh, dating system uh, works your way towards a 33 A.D. crucifixion date. Not everyone accepts the 33 uh, A.D. crucifixion date, but that is my date system that I work with in my own uh, gospel chronology. Anyway, we are approaching the end of the Galilean ministry. We are at episode 38, so you can see uh, we've got to go down through 56, but we are approaching, we're within the last year. With, at the feeding of the 5,000, which we covered a couple weeks ago, or three weeks ago, um, that marked the one year out from the cross. That was a Passover event. He did not go to Jerusalem for that Passover. He crossed to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and he failed to go to Jerusalem for the first Passover of his earthly life. And uh, we had a lot of teaching with respect to that. But that marks the one-year uh, countdown uh, that we're now in the final year of his earthly life heading to the cross where he will be crucified on the very next Passover in the spring of 33 A.D. So you don't necessarily need the harmony for any individual class time here on Wednesday mornings, but it would be good to have uh, just available uh, at home from week to week to keep track of where we are. 
All right, bring our slideshow back up. We're ready for episode 38, The Healing at Gennesaret. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that each believer priest is equipped to handle the Word of God. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the truth of your Word, and we thank you for this day and the opportunity we have to assemble together and receive instruction. Father, you have blessed us and continue to bless us uh, day after day. Um, beyond all we could ask or think, and we just rejoice at how faithful you are. Father, once again, we are going to embrace your faithfulness uh, in this time set before us. You're going to show yourself faithful as you always do. The word will go forth. It will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. We ask, Father, for humility. We ask for objectivity. Father, we ask that you would clear aside distractions, drive them from our thinking, and take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the healing at Gennesaret. Again, the text is Matthew 14, verses 34 through 36, and Mark 6, 53 through 56. Let's read them in their entirety. There are only uh, three verses in Matthew and, and four verses in Mark, so it's a pretty short episode. We read, uh, this is following the walking on water episode in both gospel accounts, that uh, they get back into the boat, and uh, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that, city, of that place recognized him, they sent word into all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were cured. Very short record there, three verses in Matthew. Over in Mark, material largely identical. It is a bit more drawn out, and I think we'll probably use Mark as our basic text more so than Matthew because we have more details in Mark. But in Mark 6, uh, again, you've got the walking on water, starting in verse 45. And then uh, in verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about that whole country and began to carry there, began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered, villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick on the, in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. Very interesting language there with as many as. And that's the, uh, the universal uh, language of different passages when you talk about as many as believed him or as many as received him or as many as that's the language of it's it's the open-ended language like whosoever whosoever believeth it's the terminology that speaks of the nature of this miracle as many as touched it were being cured everyone who touched it was cured everyone who didn't was not and that's the nature of the language all right so we've gone through it let's get some details on it Gennesaret refers to the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. Another name for the Sea of Galilee, by the way, is the Sea of Gennesaret. It's got a number of different names, including uh, Chinnereth. Uh, some of the terms come from the Hebrew language. Some come from the Aramaic. Some come from the Greek. Some come from the Latin. The Sea of Tiberias, for example, is another name for it. Tiberias being the capital city there on the western shore, kind of more to the southwestern shore. Um, the Roman political capital of that region was there at Tiberias, named after the, the uh, Caesar. Well, here um, we have a region known as Gennesaret. 
really a, a region more so than a city, although there was a city there uh, for a time of that name. But the the term began to refer to that region around the city, really that whole coastal strip, more so than uh, the city itself. And the city itself was actually uh, destroyed uh, at a particular time. And so it's debatable. Scholars actually debate whether the city was rebuilt by this early date or not. Josephus described the region in detail. It's very well attested. If you ever read Josephus, his uh, third book of the Jewish wars, he described it in extraordinary detail. That's, uh, if you're not familiar with Josephus and how the uh, labeling is, that's book 3, chapter 10, section 8. I even have it on Labronics to uh, read a clip for you here. So Josephus described the region in detail. Josephus was a Pharisee, if you're not familiar with who Josephus was. Tremendous witness to the authenticity of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek New Testament. He was a uh, first century uh, uh, Pharisee later than the time of Christ. He was a uh, general in the Roman armies. So the Jewish people viewed him as a, as a traitor. He uh, witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem, not from the inside being defeated, but from the outside being a, a Roman general involved in the, uh, the process. The country also that lies over against this lake has the same name of Gennesareth. Uh, the section before this, section 7, talked about the lake itself. Uh, so continuing on from now, I won't read that chapter, but this section here, section 8. The country also that lies over against this lake hath the same name of Gennesareth. Its nature is wonderful as well as its beauty. Its soil is so fruitful that all sorts of trees can grow upon it, and the inhabitants accordingly plant all sorts of trees there. For the temper of the air is so well mixed that it agrees very well with those several sorts, particularly walnuts, which require the coldest air, flourish there in vast plenty. There are palm trees also which grow, which grow best in hot air. Fig trees also and olive, olives grow near them, which yet require an air that is more temperate. One may call this place the ambition of nature, where it forces those plants that are naturally enemies to one another to agree together. It is a happy contention of the seasons, as if every one of them laid claim to this country. For it, is not, for it not only nourishes different sorts of autumnal fruit beyond men's expectation, but preserves them a great while. It supplies men with the principal fruits, with grapes and figs continually during ten months of the year, and the rest of the fruit as they become ripe together through the whole year. For besides the good temperature of the air, it is also watered from a most fertile mountain. The people of the country call it Capernaum, uh, or Capernaum as we have in the New Testament. Some have thought it to be a vein of the Nile because it produces the Chorazin fish, as well as that lake does, which is near to Alexandria. The length of this country extends itself along the banks of this lake that bears the same name for 30 furlongs and is in breadth 20, and this is the nature of that place. All right, there's the reading from Josephus. Also, so you, you get the idea why this region was so populated, why people settled in that region, why they came out of the, the more hilly, rocky, not as productive regions like Nazareth and, and would go settle in the more fertile, uh, productive regions there near the coast. It did mean, though, that they had to be more near to the Gentiles if they went into that region. And so some would prefer to be up in rocky uh, Nazareth and, uh, and Nain and, and some of those places rather than going down into the realm where they encounter more Romans and more Greeks. 
The Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible has a good summary as well. And, and I, I encourage you, there's a number of good uh, references. If you don't have a good Bible dictionary or Bible encyclopedia, whether you want to use Unger's uh, Bible Dictionary or the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible is a good one. The Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia is an outstanding one uh, produced by, I think, Moody Press. There's a number of good references there. Get a good uh, Bible encyclopedia. I've got eight or nine. And uh, and then and if you ha- the more you have, the more you can compare and contrast and find one that's got a, a decent article. It may you know it may be that Unger has kind of a flaky article on the subject, but but Baker has a good one, or or uh, the Evangelical uh, Encyclopedia has a good one. Anyway, the area of Gennesaret. This is from Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. Area on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee between Capernaum and Magdala, where Mary Magdalene's hometown, where many of Jesus' healing miracles took place. The plain of Gennesaret, as the district was called, curves along a distance of about four miles with an average width from the sea to the mountains of approximately one mile. So it's just a little coastal strip. It's got the Sea of Galilee on its eastern side, and it's got uh, the, the mountainous area there in the uh, upper Galilee uh, to its uh, western and northwestern boundary. So just about a mile wide and then about a four-mile strip along that coast. The topography is generally level, with the land rising slowly as it nears the bordering mountains. The usually fertile soil is laced with flowing streams and rivers and noted for its productivity. Temperatures ranging from hot to mild allow for a long growing season and abundant crops. The fruits of Gennesaret were so exceptional that the rabbis did not allow them in Jerusalem during feast observances, fearing many would attend only to enjoy their succulents. (laughs) How's that for a Pharisee for you? You know, it tastes too good, you can't have it. <laughs> Rabbis termed this area the Garden of God. During Jesus' lifetime, the area was considered the garden spot of Palestine. Trees such as the walnut, palm, olive, and fig, which require a wide diversity of growing conditions, they all flourished here. Rich harvests of grapes, walnuts, rice, wheat, vegetables, and melons, as well as wild trees and flowers were common. Later, centuries of neglect caused the plain to be largely overgrown with thorn bushes, although in more recent years, certain areas have been cleared and productivity restored. It's part of the miracle of modern Israel and how they've irrigated and, uh, and really restored the Galilean region to be uh, a prime, prime farmland. Just look it up on Google Earth and just see the, the farmland, the green that you'll have there compared to neighboring Jordan and Syria and Lebanon and, and other places that are still a wasteland. Gennesaret, miraculously termed Gennesar, was also later na- the name, uh, name of the town Chinneroth from Joshua 11, verse 2, an ancient city which had long since fallen into ruin by Jesus' day. All right, so there's a couple of the readings on the background there. As far as the map goes, I don't know how visible that is. We'll try, uh, try to get some handouts for you this morning, and we'll, we'll, get, uh, we'll get those going. The, the printer has a little glitch at the moment. But you can kind of get the idea here for the Sea of Galilee. It's a kind of a neat, almost you know, three-dimensional gift uh, uh, map, topographical, because you can kind of see the hills that go up on every side. The Sea of Galilee sits down in a bowl. It's actually below sea level. But the hills that rise up above uh, make for the violent storms that we read about in the Bible because it's fairly warm waters. There are hot springs that feed into the lake. It's a fairly warm lake. And when the cold air comes down over those mountains uh, in Lebanon or Syria or to the east, the cold air hits the warm water and the wind whips up these massive, massive storms. Um, 
But we've we've had so much of the crossing back and forth, and I think we pretty well have this whole map memorized, really. Bethsaida is in the northeast corner uh, on the shore there when the, the Jordan River flows into the lake on the north end. Um, on the right-hand side is where he fed the 5,000 in these plains over here, the plain of Bethsaida, the feeding of the multitudes. Uh, the two places that we debate, Gergesa and Gerasa, or Gadara, are both on the eastern side. Gergesa is, is right here by the coast. Gadara is a little bit further inland, uh, just on the other side of that river, the Yarmuk River. That the Yarmuk doesn't feed into the Sea of Galilee. It feeds into the Jordan below the Sea of Galilee. So when it comes to the debate of whether it was the Gadarene demon or the Gergesene demon, uh, demoniac, I think Gergesa has much more going for it because the swine rushed off the cliff into the sea, and uh, it's more natural that that would be in Gergesa rather than in uh, Gadara. Anyway, uh, then on the western side, uh, Capernaum is at the very north uh, top there, and then the plain of Gennesaret in between, including the location for Gennesaret itself. And then over here on the western edge is Magdala, where Mary Magdalene was from. Different streams that, f that flow into the, uh, into the lake there at that point. Tiberias is further southwest. And then at the bottom end, where the Jordan River then exits the Sea of Galilee, is Sanabras, uh, which is not featured in the New Testament, a very Gentile city. That, uh, that's not featured in our gospel accounts. All right. Jesus and his disciples moored to the shore. That is, they anchored in a safe harbor. Really remarkable vocabulary here in Mark chapter 6 and verse 53. That they anchored in a safe harbor. They'd been through a night of testing. They'd been through a night of storm. And in the morning, they were pleased to anchor. And uh, the idea that's not only inherent in the vocabulary, but is also inherent within Scripture for the concept of anchoring in safe harbor. I mean, that speaks of rest. It speaks, think of how many hymns we have where, that's right, where my anchor holds. You know, or I've anchored my soul in the haven of rest. Or we've got any number of hymns in our hymnal that speak of this. And the Scripture imagery is... Uh, come, comes from this very passage, actually. And uh, reading again in Mark 6, um, they moored to the shore. I don't like that rendering because the word shore actually isn't there. The term prosormizo is the verb that's utilized. And it speaks of the, the conditions of the boat, that the boat itself was anchored, that the ship was anchored. Some of the language that's used when Peter gets out, when Jesus gets in, when he gets out here, uh, the words that are used for the in and out are, are kind of unusual, and we get the idea this is probably a massive ship, not just simply a little rowboat or something that you just beach on the thing and, and step out of it, that it was probably a fairly significant ship, sailing ship, that included the capacity for at least a dozen disciples or more. There could have been 20 or 30 passengers on this ship. And um, the uh, the likelihood in the in the vocabulary of this is probably... Uh, such that it, uh, rather than being uh, tied to a pier of some sort or a dock, that uh, in all likelihood it was simply anchored in the harbor, and they may have uh, had to take a rowboat or something into the beach itself. But you got your vocabulary. Prosor means unusual word, 4358. The only time it's used in the New Testament is here. To bring a ship to moorings or to come to anchor. An anchor is a hormos. And so the verb pros, meaning to or towards, and uh, or means means that you're, you're anchoring this boat, 
you're bringing it to an Ormos anchored, a Hormos, excuse me, Hormos, an anchored condition. A safe haven is supposed to be a place for rest, but no sooner is the Lord anchored than the workload explodes. A safe anchor, a safe haven is supposed to be a place for rest, but no sooner is the Lord anchored than the workload explodes. So he gets all the rest he can get in verse 53. And they crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and anchored and were anchored. And we don't know if he disembarked immediately. You know, do you have to get out of the boat the minute you're anchored? Or can you go ahead and anchor a boat, especially if it's not lashed to a pier, if you're actually anchored out in the harbor, then uh, then you don't have to take the, the rowboat to the shore immediately. You can get a couple hours rest anyway. <laughs> because when they got out of the boat, as soon as they disembarked, when they, uh, yeah, disembarked, that's the term, exited the boat, immediately the people recognized him. So he had, uh, as long as he was still in the boat, anchored out there, he had some rest. And, and maybe that's the pattern for us when we sing these hymns, you know, that we are anchored in the haven of rest. Uh, take some time before you get out of the boat and go back to work. <laughs> All right? Because you need those seasons of rest. He was trying to teach his disciples about the seasons of rest. They'd come back from their training ministry and they needed a season of rest. They went to the eastern shore, but they got hounded over there by, by groups that actually followed them around the lake on foot to get to the eastern side where he fed the multitudes of 5,000 over there. Um, these are things that we want to keep in our thinking before we uh, you know, go into burnout. Why do so many pastors burn out? Why do so many people in ministry just uh, exhaust themselves because they never were, were resting along the way? So uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to read into the text here, but I would, I would like to think that there was a, a bit of a time lag in between verse 53 and verse 54 that they crossed over to Gennesaret. They dropped anchor and uh, caught some sleep. And then in the morning, they, they rode to the shore. But as soon as he exited the boat, he was recognized, and it's back to work again. <laughs> right? Jesus is here. And yet, the difference between what we saw with the feeding of the 5,000 and what we see here, I think, is extraordinary. And I'm, I'm going to try to share that with you today. Point three. Now, Peter had already learned that getting out of the boat requires faith. Remember, Peter got out of the boat um, when they were nowhere near the shore. They were out there in the middle of the lake. Jesus was walking on water. Peter said, Lord, since it is you, first class condition, command me to, uh, to walk on the water. And so Jesus said, come. And he got out of the boat and he started walking. But that requires faith. If you're going to leave your safe harbor or if you're going to get out of the boat when you're nowhere near a harbor, you better be ready to walk the walk of faith. And if you get distracted, if you get your eyes off of the Lord, if you get your eyes off of your work assignment, what happened to Peter? He started to sink. And uh, in some cases, uh, you don't have a lot of time for real urgent prayers. So Peter already learned that lesson. The Lord already knew that lesson. The Lord was living that lesson when he walked across the lake in the first place and, and, and uh, told him to stop being afraid. Now, when the Lord gets out of the boat, he has to do the same thing. He has to apply faith. Just because he knew it and passed the test last night doesn't mean he's going to automatically pass it this morning. And just because he passed it last night and taught it to Peter doesn't mean that he's going to pass it this morning. Do pastors ever fail tests 
that uh, the, 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 the doctrine to apply to pass that test um, was, was given. See, I didn't phrase that well. Do pastors ever fail a test in which the doctrine necessary to pass that test was doctrine they had taught in the past to their flock? Absolutely. You know, you read about these pastors in the news that, whatever, they get involved in sin. And, 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 and that should not be newsflash. That should not be scandal. The headline should read, pastors are sinners like every other human being on the planet. Right? But when they do sin, I guarantee, if they've been in the ministry long enough, whatever the sin was, adultery or whatever, they probably preached about it. Now, maybe it's been a while Maybe they've avoided preaching on certain things during the season that they were involved in whatever they were involved with, but they had preached about it, and they do know the truth, and they're sinning in spite of the truth. Every believer does that. If you're accountable for it, and you've been taught, and you know what's right, you know what's wrong, and you do what's wrong anyway, then that's the, that's the issue. Now, here's the Lord. He has to walk by faith, and he knows it. He exemplified it the night before. He taught Peter the lesson. Peter got out of the boat. Peter started to fail, but he uh, confessed and asked for help, and he was back on top of the water again. They were able to get back into the boat. So even though they passed the test last night, does not mean it's an automatic victory this morning. The Lord still has to pass the test. He can really blow it here in Gennesaret. He can blow it for two different reasons. There may be more, but I, I listed two, and you'll get those under the subpoint. But just because he had a victory last night, this morning could be a real vulnerable time. All right? And let me just give you one quick side trip, Matthew 16. And, and, and I turn here because it's easy for me to find. Matthew 16. It's a very well-known passage. It's the one the, the Roman church uses to try to validate that their church is the one true church that descends from Peter. But Matthew 16... And uh, Jesus is uh, testing his disciples. Who do the people say the Son of Man is? Well, this and that. Who do you say that I am? And in verse 16, Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, Son of the living God. Wonderful. Perfect. Great answer. Bingo. Gold star for Peter. Simon And uh, Jesus said to him, Blessed are you. This is, this is probably the shining moment for Peter. This is even better than walking on water. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, you are Petros, and upon this Petra, there's a change of gender there between Petros and Petra, Peter's masculine, this rock is feminine, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And in this wonderful passage, we're going to deal with this in tremendous length. Peter's shining moment. But... Let's go to the next paragraph, okay? It doesn't wait until the next morning. How about the very next breath? You can follow a great victory with a crash and burn failure. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Well, Peter's not going to get another blessed are you, Simon Barjona, here. <laughs> he gets, get behind me, Satan. What a contrast. And that is just back-to-back -back paragraphs. 
So it can be like that. If you have, if you pass a test, praise the Lord for it, offer thanksgiving, share it with your brothers and sisters in Christ so they can rejoice with those who rejoice, but don't get prideful about it. You better continue to pray for, for humility and not get fat-headed over some kind of victory. It wasn't your victory anyway. So uh, the Lord has to now make this application. When the Lord got out of the boat, he had to keep his eyes fixed firmly on his work assignment. We're told in Hebrews the reason why he was able to endure the cross and despise the shame because he was fixing his eyes firmly for the, for the, uh, the joy that was set before him. Great fame could promote internal pride. Here's one reason why he had to keep his eyes on the work assignment. Now, this was this episode in Gennesaret was deadly. It was a snare. I think it was more hazardous than Peter getting out of the boat in the middle of a lake. It was the Lord getting out of the boat in Gennesaret? I believe the positive volition here in Gennesaret was extraordinary and it could have been very seductive. See, great fame could promote internal pride. Now, he just left an episode on the eastern shore where there was great fame and the desire to make him king based on selfish reasons, based on uh, he could feed us, he can multiply loaves. What a great king. Let's make him king. And a crowd of people that were chasers, they chased him from the western shore around to the eastern shore. Those were chasers. These guys, I think at first glance, we think of them as chasers, but there's a difference in their chasing. And I want to I be, um, I really want to highlight here this morning that, that they seem to be chasers, but they're not chasers like those other guys chased them all the way across the lake. They're not chasers like the first crowd were chasers. I'm going to get to Ezekiel here in a moment, but I think in the account here of uh, these crowds. If you just glance, where are you? Where do I leave? Did I leave you in Matthew or did I leave you in Mark? You in Mark? Okay, I'll go to Mark then. I'll work with you. This is easy. Uh, in Mark. And you'll see, if you back way up to verses 32 and 33, you'll see the, note, the nature of those chasers I'm talking about from the feeding of the 5,000 incident. Then in verse, uh, they needed time to be secluded. They needed a time to rest. And he told them in verse 31, uh, you know, they, they reported to him of their training ministry in verse 30. He'd sent them out two by two. They'd had a ministry. They came back. They had a lot to report. They had to learn from what the, the mistakes they'd made and the things they'd done. And uh, so he said, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. So they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. Now notice these chasers. The people saw them going and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. In other words, they saw them depart from the western shore headed east. And these chasers actually ran around to get there. So Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, he felt compassion, and then there's the feeding of the 5,000. So there's that crowd, and I'm, I'm calling that crowd a crowd of chasers. Now, this crowd back on the western shore now, when they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, same concept. But they recognized that he was now coming to them, rather than recognizing that he was leaving them, oh, we've got to hound him down. It's a difference. They recognized him, 
And they didn't, they didn't chase him across. They stayed where they were. And they waited for him to come back. Now he's back. Now we have an opportunity. Not to hound him to the ends of the earth, but hey, he's back here with us. It's a big difference. All right. Great fame could promote internal pride. Ezekiel 28. If you're not familiar with this passage, I think it's a foundational passage in the overall Alpha to Omega uh, study on the plan of God. It's, uh, it's a pivotal passage in understanding the angelic conflict because it goes back to describe conditions on the earth when, Ezekiel, when uh, Satan was the great high priest of the angelic priesthood during the angelic stewardship before the creation of man. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. So this, this message, if it's applying to a human being, can only apply to Adam and Eve. They were the only ones that were in Eden. After they were expelled from Eden, they, uh, you know, they never went back into Eden. The angel was posted there. Um, the, uh, this is not with reference to a human being. This is in reference to an angel. Specifically, we understand it to be Satan. He's called a cherub in verse 14. He was called the Christ cherub in verse 14. The Mashiach, the anointed cherub who covers. And I placed you there. You are on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways, it says in verse 15. You are blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Now, none of us are created. We were born. To be a created being, Adam was a created being. Eve was a created being. She was created from the rib of her husband. The angels were individually created beings. We were born. This being was created. He was in a, a Messiah cherub. He was blameless. And you'll note, this is a creature that started blameless but fell into a position of condemnation. That's not true for any of us. We were born unrighteous. We were born totally depraved in Adam. We were born lost. And we became righteous when God justified us at the moment of our salvation. So for you and I, we're born in unrighteousness and we became righteous when he imputed that to our account. This is backwards. You were blameless until, from the day you were created, created blameless, until unrighteousness was found in you and falling into an estate of, of uh, rebellion, as was the case for the fallen angels. The only human being that could ever, human beings this would apply to would be Adam and Eve, who were created blameless and who sinned in Genesis 3 by partaking of that fruit. That's not what this chapter describes. And so I, I think it's obvious we're talking about Satan here, um, that he was, of, of all the angelic beings, he was the most perfect. If I even back up to verse 13, I skipped over the every precious stone was recovered. Remember, he was a dragon. He is a dragon. Only he wasn't a nasty, dark, scaly, ugly, hideous dragon. He was a very beautiful dragon. And if you can just envision a picture of a dragon in your mind and the, the stones of his chest and his armor and things that are described in, in Job. But imagine those stones of his armor were these precious stones. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper. You just imagine the glory of this dragon. The lapis lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day you were created, they were prepared. So birds were given feathers and, and uh, uh, other animals were given fur. 
Uh, fish were given scales and so forth. This dragon was given gold and silver and these stones and the nature of his settings and sockets. What a glorious creature this dragon was. If you want to call him Lucifer, I don't call him Lucifer, but um, from Isaiah 14, that's a Vulgate term. If, if, you, if you're really big on Latin, go ahead and call him Lucifer. Uh, if you want to uh, keep the Hebrew text from what it is, call him Hillel. Hillel ben Shachar is the Hebrew, uh, shining one, son of the dawn. So here is Hillel and uh, the great jeweled dragon. Glorious creature. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until righteousness was found in you. But now notice verse 16. It doesn't say you ate the tree you weren't supposed to eat from because the serpent tricked you. No, this is not Adam's fall. This is Satan's fall. By the abundance of your trade, he failed the prosperity test. He got wealthy in the angelic economy. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Mental attitude sin preceding the overt activity. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. He had a priesthood role. If you ever want to do the study on it, match up those stones with a high priest ephod in the Levitical priesthood. And you'll find that the high priest had 12. This uh, listing has nine. Uh, the Septuagint listing of this passage has 12, which is interesting. Um, notice, he's cast out from the mountain of God. That's the religious center. That is the temple, uh, the place of worship. He still has access to the courts because he can go to the judicial courts and accuse us. But he no longer has access to the mountain of holiness, the, the mountain of, uh, of uh, worship. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. So great fame could promote internal pride. This was the fall of Satan. And later on, it'll be the pride of Solomon. It's the pride of all these kings that failed the prosperity test. Notice, uh, I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. The, um, the nature, uh, the reason why the angelic rebels weren't immediately judged, condemned, and cast in the lake of fire for all eternity, but they were placed before observation in the outworking of the angelic conflict. The human realm has to observe this as well. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, again, trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. See, Satan was the first of the temple money changers. This is why the Lord went so berserk in, in John and, and, in, uh, and later on. And he had two incidents where the Lord had to cleanse the temple from the money changers. And you wonder, why did he go, go berserk? Why did zeal for the father's house uh, consume him the way that it did? Well, he'd seen this before. It was an earthly human reflection of the original satanic revolt. So in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. So there go the gems, the jewels, the beauty of that dragon. If he wants to appear as an angel of light nowadays, he's got to disguise himself. Because now he's the darkened, scaled, brutal uh, Leviathan we read about in Job. So fire has come forth from the midst of you, it has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth. Anyway. The principle being that great fame could promote internal pride. And this is where Christ has the victory because no matter how much the ministry grew, no matter how many thousands were following after, no matter how many disciples were assembling, no matter how much his fame spread, 
he would not allow himself to plunge into these realms of pride, to have that internal mental attitude sin start to creep in that would cause him to depart from his father. So great fame could promote internal pride. There was a second snare, though, getting out of the boat. Severe demands could exhaust patience. Severe demands could exhaust patience. Another snare that the Lord faced. He could have gotten out of the boat, stepped onto the dock, started seeing the crowds gathering around, and just go, ah. you know, throw his fist down or stomp his foot or say, what is it with you people? No matter what side of the lake I go on, you guys are hounding me, right? No, these are the ones actually that didn't hound him. They didn't chase him to the other side. They stayed there. And now they're welcoming him back once he's returned. I think that's a significant difference. Nevertheless, they're still making demands on him. But while they make the demands on them, they're limiting the demands they're making on him. And we'll touch on that as well. Severe demands could exhaust patience. And... Uh, you're familiar with Numbers chapter 20? What happens in Numbers chapter 20? Moses forfeits his right to enter into the promised land. And the people are grumbling. The Lord says, take your rod and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you for out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. He was told to speak to it. He struck it. He uh, called them rebels. He said, shall we bring forth water? As if Moses was the one doing it. And the uh, Lord followed through on the miracle. Water came out. But then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel... You shall not bring this assembly to the land. And this was the judgment upon Moses and Aaron. So severe demands could exhaust patience. Yeah, if your pastor ever gets up and says, all right, you rebels. You know, starts calling names. If any of you manage to bring a Bible, go ahead and open it if you think it's worth anything. And, you know, just get all grumbling. All right. If you didn't bring a Bible, we got them in the pockets for you, you know. Open to this book. Let me tell you where to find it because you obviously don't know where it is. Chances are that pastor is pretty carnal. <laughs> you know, go ahead and pray for him. You start to wonder when that silent prayer at the start of Bible class stretches for several minutes on end. All right. So these are the snares. Let's talk about the inhabitants. The inhabitants of Gennesaret recognize Jesus with an epigonosco full knowledge. They recognize Jesus with an epigonosco full knowledge. And they were excited. They were excited that he'd returned. They knew that this was their opportunity. It's the same verb in, in Matthew that is used in Mark, epigonosco. Matthew 14:35 and Mark 6:54. They recognize Jesus with an epigonosco full knowledge. We're talking about gnosis and epinosis. Gnosko, to know, to know the facts, to know the information, but epigonosko, to know fully, to put all the facts together, to have a more complete knowledge. And so this is the epigonosko, the full recognition of Jesus. And so that's the, uh, the verb that's used here. And I want to say, we had another one. 
when they recognized him and they chased him across the uh, the lake. And prob that probably was also Epigonosco as well. wasn't used in Matthew, but it was used in Mark. All right, so you have verse 35. Now, the inhabitants of Gennesaret, I couldn't come up with a better name for them. I don't know, did they call themselves Gennesarites or, Aust well, we're Austinites, uh, Gennesar, Gennesarines? Gennesarites. Actually, the Gennesaret part is almost identical to uh, to Nazareth in, in uh, some respects, depending on how you relate the Hebrew to the through the Aramaic to the Greek, but... Uh, if, if the Naz if people from Nazareth are called Nazarenes, then I guess people from Gennesareth are uh, Gennesarenes. Yeah, they're not Nazarenes, they're Gennesarenes. All right, so the Gennesarenes. Let's spend the rest of our morning here in Mark. The, the Gennesarenes, people, the inhabitants of Gennesaret, ran about. They ran about. Interesting phrase. Uh, they ran around. And carried the afflicted here and there. It's like a frenzy. Um, it's like turning the light on and a pack of cockroaches just scramble and go wherever. Right? It's, it's just a frenzy. Jesus is here. And so all of a sudden, everyone's just going to run everywhere. Go grab Bill. Go grab Fred. Go grab Susie. Go grab whoever. And, and because this is the opportunity. Interesting phraseology in verse 55. They ran about and they ran about that whole country and began to carry and the, the, the adverbs here and there. Because wherever he traveled, that's where they were running to. Whenever he entered villages or cities or countryside. So as he made his way around this district, this region and the, and the Gennesaret region was uh, a region within the overall territory of, of uh, the governorship here of, of Galilee, but wherever he went in this region, um, they were going to take the people there. So they ran about and carried the afflicted here and there. It shows, it shows a patience, and it, but it also shows a, a, an energetic positive volition, see, whereas the other crowd, the chasers, you say, well, doesn't that show energy? The chasers? Well, no. They, yes, they went to great lengths. They chased him clear to the other side, but then they just sat there and expected him to feed them. These guys didn't hound him to the other side of the lake. They waited in their region, in their realm. He crossed back to their side, and once he was back in town, so to speak, now they're going to get busy within the, the limited periphery of, of where they are. But they're still busy running here, running about. Their sense of urgency prompted fast action. Their sense of urgency prompted fast action. How long is he going to be in this region? What if he goes back to the eastern shore again? Or what if he goes further west up into the, the highlands of, uh, of Galilee, up towards Nazareth and his hometown and so forth? He may only be here in the Gesserith region for a short time. So it's a sense of urgency and it prompts fast action. They're actually making application of an admonishment he's going to be giving the disciples here as the cross approaches. He's going to say, uh, you know, while the light is still among you, better walk in the light. Because he was about to go to the cross. He was about to be taken from him. And he, he says, this is the opportunity while I'm still here. 
So they have that sense of urgency, and I think that's a positive feature. I think everything I look at with these uh, Gennesarenes, uh, inhabitants of Gennesaret, I'm seeing a positive volition in, uh, in a grace kind of way. Again, the language in Mark 6, whenever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him. So they, they had a flexibility about wherever he went. They didn't try to detain him. They didn't try to modify his itinerary. They didn't try to, uh, they, they weren't necessarily hounding him to the lengths that the other group did. But while he was in their midst, they accommodated themselves to his, to his direction which I give you under point C. The recognition of his itinerary triggered their geographic adjustments within an overall proximity. In other words, within this region. They would make the adjustments. Is he in Magdala? Is he in Gennesaret? Is he in one of the smaller villages? Wherever he went, they made that adjustment. See, so far as it was within an overall proximity, as long as he was here. They'll make that adjustment. And that's uh, described in the wherever, the here and there wherever they heard. Here and there on their pallets, those who were sick, to the place they heard he was. To the place they heard he was. You know, in, in many respects, this is kind of a pattern for the church age in terms of pastors and teachers and Bible teaching. It's it becomes a question of, well, where is there a Bible teacher? See, man called me from Florida and said, you know, I've got a choice. I got two different cities I'm looking at for my retirement. He's 60 years old. He's going to retire. And uh, uh, but he was only he was limiting the locations of where he is going based upon where he heard that there is teaching. And insofar that he heard that there's teaching in Austin, then that's on his list as a possibility for his retirement. And he's not going to consider a place that everybody else says, oh, you ought to go here, you ought to go here. No, because there's not teaching there. Some people, though, they just go where they're going to go, and then they, they say, okay, what's the best teaching we can come up with since this is where we're going to be? Or you say, wait a minute, where is our teaching? Let's get under teaching, and then let's get the best employment or housing or, or other earthly things based upon where there's teaching. See, which way is it going to be? You're going to make do with the best teaching you can come up with based on where you're going to live? Or are you going to find the best teaching you can and then get the best employment and living conditions and housing and things like that? You can make different priorities and, and different believers do that in different ways. Well, these guys found out where he was and they went there. When they went And they went there. They did not cross to the eastern shore chasing after him. They did not cross to the eastern shore chasing after him. Makes it interesting. I could illustrate some more, I guess. In a church age application, there are pastor chasers that will uh, go to the ends of the earth, wherever that pastor goes. But if, if a pastor is removed from a lampstand and, and the Lord moves a pastor somewhere else, Maybe he goes to the mission field, or maybe he goes to uh, another part of the country, or whatever. Does it, should the whole church go with him, <laughs> or is that a lampstand planted in a location? I think from Revelation two and three, it's pretty clear the Lord plants those lampstands in locations. 
And is there a shepherd that God has designed for that lampstand? Anyway, these guys uh, were not the chasers like the other guys were. They were the patient waiters waiting for him to come back. During the time of his being near, they maximized the opportunity. During the time of his being near, during his nearness, during the time of his being near, they maximized the opportunity. And I think this is consistent with John 12:35 and Galatians 6:10. During the time of his being near, they maximized the opportunity. John 12:35 and Galatians 6:10. John 12:35 He's, whoops. John 12:35. Got nothing count. I rang that myself. So Jesus said to them, "For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light." In other words, there is an opportunity. There is a season. Right here, right now, the Lord is in your midst. Galatians 6:10 bringing it into a church age frame of reference. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. While we have opportunity, we talk about open door opportunities, work assignments. There's a lot of good things that could be done in this world, but they may not be designed for you. Because what are the opportunities you have set before you? What, have, what are the open doors? What are the ministries? So while we have opportunity, recognize the open doors he places for you. And that's what you are to pursue for all people, but especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Finally, they sought to minimize his inconvenience. Yes, they were adjusting to where he was, but at the same time they were adjusting to where he was, they were also sensitive to what he was doing and the demands upon his time. And they sought to minimize his inconvenience by limiting his involvement to just being touched. The word just being touched. It's used in Matthew 14, it's used in Mark 6, it's also used, uh, that woman with the hemorrhage used it back in Matthew 9, verses 20 and 21. Even if, if only, at least, the vocabulary is the, is the Greek con. It's a, a conjunction of chi and on. But you'll notice in Mark 6, wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick on the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just, only, simply, uh, might just touch the fringe of his cloak. See, we don't want to detain you. We don't want to stop you. We don't want you to stop and touch us. We don't want you to. We don't want to interrupt what you're doing. But while you're in town, as you're passing, can you pass through this marketplace? And we we we, uh, we got these guys. They're all laid out. See, you don't need to go to 15 different houses. We put all of them right here in the marketplace in a row. So if you just walk by as you're headed to the gate, they can reach out and touch the hem of your coat. So you see, they are bending over backwards. They are taking the extra mile step. They are making the, uh, the conditions such that it limits 
is inconvenienced. That woman back in Matthew 9 didn't even want her to know about it. She just snuck up behind him and, and touched the fringe of his cloak. She didn't even want him to stop or know what, what was going on. That word just is, a, is part of the in-purpose clause uh, imploring him that, in order that, they might, completing the thought of the purpose clause, just, simply, only, just touch the fringe of his cloak. That's all they were hoping for. And, and, and so the, the circumstances were organized on their part to limit his inconvenience and to uh, maximize the opportunity of the time that they had with him in their midst. Because they didn't know how long he was going to be around. They didn't know when he might be back the next time. And uh, they really wanted to take advantage of this opportunity. I think the whole thing here is an expression of uh, a positive volition. And you'll note that their faith, same as that woman in in Matthew chapter 9, was uh, effective because the healing was taking place. You'll note the end of Mark 6, as many as touched it were being cured. As many as. That means not one who touched it failed to be cured. And not one who failed, or not one who didn't touch it, got cured. The cure was dependent upon the touching, see. Like when the serpent, when the standard was lifted up in the wilderness, look and laugh. Those who looked at the bronze serpent were cured. Those who did not died. A very important concept is the issue of salvation. Whosoever believes. If you don't believe, are you going to go to heaven when you die? No. It's the whosoever, as many as, as many as. All right. Any questions on that? We're at the top of our hour. Our next event is the bread of life message from John 6. So we'll break into that next week, take a few weeks on that. We've got three more weeks Remember the calendar right. Um, we will not be having class during my Kiev trip. So we've got uh, three more weeks of Wednesday morning classes. We'll have two weeks off while I'm in Kiev. Question? You think that hemorrhage lady might have been telling some stories? The... Uh, Right. I don't know. Uh, we're not told that they recognize him by his appearance. Uh, Isaiah says he has no stately former majesty that we should be attracted to him. Uh, but obviously, whatever he looked like, that description was known. Uh, maybe the way he dressed, maybe the way he, uh, you know, he had the long flowing hair that Leonardo da Vinci painted. Kind of the soft, effeminate features. That's Jesus. They saw him in the paintings. No. It may have been that, or it may have been, uh, and, and then the, the, the knucklehead fishermen that were trailing after him with the women, you know. And, uh, <laughs> That's right. And, and actually, that is a very vivid observation that many of the commentators make. I didn't make it, but a lot of the commentators make it, that these people here on the coast recognized him, but out last night in the middle of the lake, the disciples didn't. The disciples thought it was a ghost, and they didn't recognize him. They got scared. And so a lot of the commentators pick up on that. I didn't really make that a, a big deal. I didn't mention it all in the class, but that's uh, it's a big contrast there. That's right. 
All right, let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you for this class and the opportunity we have. And Father, here's yet another episode that we want to glean the principles from. And and Father, uh, I put myself back in this time frame and I don't know that I'd be... Uh, I'd be recognizing him or not, or I'd be afraid or not, or where I'd be. But I thank you that we have a pattern there that we can recognize that while we have opportunity, we want to take advantage of those opportunities and we want to uh, redeem the time. We're commanded to redeem the time because the days are evil. So we thank you for these principles. We thank you for this truth. And we thank you for this assembly and how you continue to be at work. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.